So, hi everyone. Good evening. Um, so, what I want to talk about tonight is um, prompted by a question I received by email. Just, I don't know actually, what time did it come in? Not that long ago. Um, Four fifteen this afternoon um, from someone in the group. I'm gonna. Um, this person is welcome to out themselves as a person who wrote. But I wanted people to feel free to write me and not not think that um, I'll I'll name them when I share the question. So like in case you know you're, I would only ever do that with your explicit permission. But I thought I'd answer this question. Um, to the group, because actually it's a very interesting question. Um, it's one I think maybe others might have, but it also just opens uh, up to a variety of really interesting ways of thinking about practice. Um, so um, I think I'll save the question itself for a little bit later, um, but um, it's about creativity, imagination, and their relationship to practice. Um, so I think just um, as a way of easing in to the evening and to the sitting that will start before too long, I want to quote something that the Zen priest and um, poet Norman Fisher um, said in an essay of his called, Are You Writing? Um, it's a wonderful essay that I've taught a few different times in my classes on Buddhism and American literature and culture. Um, and it's not a thought that's unique to Norman. Um, definitely not the first person to have said any, something like this, but I just, I, I think the, the down-to-earth way he put it is memorable to me. So he said, um, oh, now that I said that, I'm going to forget the word. <laughs> but we are who we tell ourselves we are in language. Um, and this essay, Are You Writing?, is a meditation on his dual life as Zen priest, and for many years, abbot of San Francisco Zen Center and the affiliated um, temples, Green Gulch, Tassajara. Um, and um, I would say, you know, a pretty important figure in the world of experimental poetry in the United States, kind of fellow traveler of this group of poets that were known as the language poets. Um, turns out that he was the best friend of my, one of my dissertation advisors at Penn who um, was named Bob Perlman. Um, and Bob's sister, Sue Moon, is also a Zen teacher. Um, and he, she and Norman have written books together um, about Zen. In any case, Norman, this essay is thinking about um, the ambivalent relationship that Zen has to language, um, scriptures, but just words this constant sense that somehow words are trouble, language is trouble. You know, words can at best be fingers pointing to the moon of truth. What we really want, right, is the moon, not just the finger. Um, and so he said, yeah, in a way, language is trouble, words are trouble. We wouldn't suffer. We wouldn't have the cravings we do. We wouldn't have the delusions we have if there were not language. But then again, we wouldn't be without language either. There would be no one here to have problems, right? So, um, and so, it seems to him, and I think I agree with this, that the point is not somehow to escape from language, which should be some kind of desire to just escape from being human, but to find a way of inhabiting being with language and words in a way that 
doesn't cause us more suffering than is necessary. I think some suffering is inevitable, right? But we cause so much more suffering for ourselves than I think we need to and for each other. And so um, we are who we tell ourselves we are in language. And that goes at so many different levels. Um, last week, we talked a little bit about this sense, this picture that we can have of ourselves as having inner depths and that we need to plumb these inner depths, right? In order to discover who we really are. That, um, and even, even once we're on the path of practice, we can start to feel like, oh yeah, I mean, my false ego images are starting to soften and dissolve. And I'm feeling open and vulnerable. And maybe what's vulnerable, um, what's becoming exposed, feeling raw and tender is my true self, the self that's got baby flesh, right? So easily scared and hurt. Um, and yet, I think if we take the Buddhist idea of no self seriously, underneath the dance of the self, underneath you know the different ideas we have about ourselves, it's not some true self, but something other. And maybe better not to say exactly what it is. But it's not that there is some core truth about who we are that's become obscured. And so this idea, this picture that we have inner depths is one of the things we say about ourselves in language. And by saying it, it becomes so, right? We produce that inner core self that we then need to discover, give expression to find, we need to find ourselves, right? Um, but that's more a product of the way we modern Western individuals have come to think about what it is to have a self than it is something true about who, what humans are, right? A, a, a way, one, easy way of understanding what's going on in English departments, humanities departments in modern universities these days is a vast complex study of all the different stories that, that humans have told about themselves that actually create the versions of the self that they're talking about. And this acknowledgement that different times, different places have different words that we use to describe who we are. And by using those words, actually create those very selves, create the forms of those selves. Um, and so that we in 20, 21st century America practicing Zen probably have a very different sense of what it is to have a self than uh, mid early 20th century Japanese monk might have had or a 15th century Chinese monk, right? That's okay. Different times have different forms. I think one of the beautiful things about Buddhism is that it understands that form is relative and shifting and changes moment by moment, but also epoch to epoch, culture to culture. And yet there's this kind of emptiness that pervades it all. Um, that is a truth that is entangled with whatever forms these selves take at any particular moment in time. And so different times, different cultures, I think practice will look different because we are working on different kinds of forms. And I think one of the reasons why modern American Western Buddhism 
is becoming so interested in psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, therapeutic modalities, because it understands that for the forms of suffering that we have now that pervade our culture and our times, we need, I think, something to complement the traditional Buddhist practices that come down to us. And psychotherapy, psychoanalysis offers some of that. I'll tell you a story that illustrates a bit of what I'm getting at. Just a really, it just really, it's, it's an incredible story. It's a short one, but um, it's in the beginning, it's told in the beginning of this book, um, When the Swans Came to the Lake, which is a history of how Buddhism came to the United States from Asia. It tells the stories of all the different Asian teachers who came over and planted the seed of Dharma in the West. And there's a lot of amazing stories, funny stories. And one of the, the most memorable and surprising stories to me was um, told about Tibetan Buddhist teachers who came to the United States and discovered a form of dukkha that they had never seen before. And it was called low self-esteem. And what blew me away, it's like, how could that not be a universal condition, right? I can't actually imagine a human being that has not suffered at some time from low self-esteem. Um, and yet I, I can't but take these Tibetan teachers at their word. You know, I don't think they're making it up, but they say, well, there's this kind of particular form of suffering that we just haven't seen before, you know? Um, and it's really weird. And it is weird, really, when you think about it, it's also sad. Um, but I think it says it's a, that that alone. I think talks about how you know suffering and the form of the self can change so much, culture to culture, time to time, and that therefore I think the skillful means that we need to use to alleviate the suffering that will appear at different times, at different places will change. It's one of the reasons why Buddhism is a living system. It's never going to settle because suffering will always change and mutate in form. Right. Um, and you can imagine all sorts of reasons why we have self-esteem, right? Our, our emphasis on radical individuality, why we each have to find our own meaning and value or purpose, you know, for ourselves. We've lost all sense of genuine communal connection to others, right? I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why I think um, you can imagine why we suffer in this way, but I think it's a really good reminder that there's nothing universal about this form of suffering. It says more about the times in which we live and the kind of sicknesses that pervade our culture. So we are who we tell ourselves we are in language. And of course, there are those big scale stories we tell ourselves like, you know, that you're, we're basically just free agents where individuals need to make it in a capitalist society. We need to find our own niche, our market, right? Our own, we need to produce value or else what are we worth? Um, there are those big scale stories that we're telling about ourselves. But they're also the little ones like, I'm a fearful person. I have no creativity. No one's ever gonna love me, right? Um, I'm broken. Each of us has our own variations, which I think maybe we think is really unique, but probably other people on this call share to some extent. Um, and I think what we do when we meditate is we just become really familiar with the stories that we are telling ourselves over and over again. And by telling ourselves these stories over and over again, producing in ourselves a sense that this is the truth of who we are, that we are broken, right? We're not just telling ourselves this thought that we're broken, but we are broken. Or we're not really lovable, or we're incapable of trusting another, right? Whatever it is. So, I mean, that's a really just simple down to earth way of understanding what we do when we note thoughts and see the effect those thoughts have in our body and the way that our body carries the consequences of those thoughts and our belief in them.
just simply learning to parse, learning to understand, to see the stories that we tell about ourselves. And by seeing them with clarity, becoming free of their devastating grip. So let's do a little bit of that work together, all right? Um, let's just sit for a bit, um, 20, 25 minutes, and then I'll read and respond to the question that I got by email. But what I said has laid the groundwork, I think, for what I wanna do then, okay? So please just get in a comfortable position. Balanced. your torso positioned such that your belly and your chest can move freely, the breath unhindered, moving in and out of your body. And let's just Use a simple dual awareness practice tonight, listening openly to all the sounds in the space around us and feeling the sensations of the breath. And please feel free to choose whatever spots work best for you when following the breath. It could be the nose, your chest, or your belly or some combination, even all three spots, if you wanna follow the breath in the nose, the chest and the belly simultaneously, that would be just fine. So you wanna have these anchors as helps to stabilize your focus, but don't hold too tightly to them. The point is not to concentrate on them so that your awareness becomes laser-like, but rather just have those anchors there so that you don't spin off into fantasy. When we begin a sitting, the mind is naturally gonna be a bit more stirred up. Perhaps that's putting it mildly, perhaps your mind is really quite agitated and active and that's okay. Let the mind just settle on its own. Stay with the anchors and just watch how the mind acts, how it feels, how the body feels. With part of your awareness, staying steady and being steadied by the anchors of breath and sound.
at first. The thoughts may be going too quickly, maybe too jumbled for you to pick any out with any clarity, and that's okay. You can just say thinking, just looking at the whole mass of thoughts. But as the mind begins to settle, you may begin to be able to pick out a thought here or there with some clarity. Just take note of what the thoughts are about. What these fragments of the various stories that your mind is spinning are about. Perhaps there are thoughts of frustration that you can't concentrate. That's an interesting thought. Just notice it. Or perhaps you're sensing some expectation of how you want this sitting to feel. Just notice that. And once in a while, despite these anchors, you will spin off into fantasy. You will completely lose track of the breath and sounds. And when you notice that, just come back gently. And if you judge yourself for having spun off into fantasy, then notice that thought. Chances are, if you're judging yourself here about your meditation practice, you judge yourself at other times in your life too. This is like a laboratory to see how you relate to your experience and to yourself. This simple watching, this simple awareness is actually all we would ever need to do. But sometimes it can be helpful as a way of deepening our awareness by spending just a few minutes doing a bit of a body scan of different parts of the body to help sort of ground our awareness even more in our present moment experience, our embodied present experience. So for those of you who might want to try that, please bring your awareness to your lower belly. Just feel the sensations that you come across as you let your awareness hover, hang out in the lower belly area. Some of you may encounter tension or discomfort of different kinds in the lower belly. And if you do notice any holding, tightness, discomfort, soften your awareness around those sensations. Let them be there. And just 
see if you can accept them as part of your present. And if it feels hard to, if the discomfort is something you feel aversion to, resistance to, perhaps there's an emotional color to the tension that you don't like, that you want to get away from, then soften around that, around the resistance, the aversion, as best you can. And just notice how it feels. Now let's bring our awareness to our lower back. What sensations do you feel in the muscles that run up and down either side of your lower spine? Is there tension, soreness? Can you feel the movement of the breath in the lower back? Now please bring your awareness down into your buttocks. And at first, just feel the contact that your bottom makes with whatever you happen to be sitting or resting on. And then with each breath, let your awareness sink a bit deeper into the muscles of this area, into your glutes. Just exploring the sensations in those big, powerful muscles. And the last place I'd like you to scan this brief, brief mini scan are your hands. Just feel the sensations in your palms. Do you notice any tension or holding in the palms? Notice how bringing awareness to that tension may actually produce a slight shifting or softening of the tension. What do you feel up and down the fingers? And how does the air of the room that you are in feel on the bare exposed skin of your hands? If there's a part of the body that seems to be calling to you because it's particularly uncomfortable or has some intense sensation, then feel free to let your awareness wander over there. But otherwise, please just return to the dual awareness practice with which we began. Breath and sounds, it's a soft anchor. It's just a general awareness of thoughts, how the body's doing, emotions, just watching, 
the passing show. We'll sit like this for just a few more minutes and then I'll signal when the period is over. Feel free to continue sitting as I continue speaking, or feel free to just move around and get in a more comfortable position. So I wanna read the question um, that came to me this afternoon and then offer an initial response, which will be connected to stuff I was talking about earlier. And hopefully I'll be able to um, make those, some of those connections more explicit. Um, so this person wrote, I have a question of a practice that I need to ask you. I had a recent experience during meditation where I had a spontaneous vision. It's what I would consider a creative vision because I just started imagining a character and situation that has nothing to do with my life but that I was completely involved in. It was a beautiful vision that I wanted to follow to see where it would lead to. I was ple pleasantly surprised at the same time, not sure what I should do. Normally I have thoughts come up that I need to note, but not images with sounds and places all of their own. 
Was this a situation where my mind was trying to creatively exit the meditation? Or did the meditation unblock a path to creativity that I should be open to following? What is the relationship between meditation, imagination, and creativity? And how should I treat this situation if it happens in the future? That's a wonderful question. Um, and there are a lot of different things to be said in response to it, and only some of which I'll have time to get to tonight. Um, so, I think one thing, this is not actually the central point I want to make, but actually it's a really important practical point that's relevant whether one's having um, an appealing vision or not, um, just a sort of matter of so basic technique. Um, when we note thoughts, when we observe thoughts, um, judging whether or not the thought is a thought that should be noted, meaning like it's a, an illusory thought or a thought that um, is somehow something we should like, you know, let go of and, and, and return to the, is actually not part of what noting is. Noting is completely neutral. It's simply just acknowledging what is emerging consciousness not judging whether or not it's a thought that um, in a way you should or shouldn't follow. So that one of those, one of the basic questions this person's asking is addressed simply by um, clarifying the fact that noting doesn't come with a kind of implicit or surreptitious judgment quality. Like this is a bad thought or this is a good thought or a, or, or a thought I, I shouldn't be indulging in. You just know. And then you see what happens, and sometimes, and so, um, so in a way, like noting a thought won't. Well, some sometimes just by acknowledging a thought or noting a thought, the thought will dissolve. You know, it's, it's just sort of not much there, and sometimes it will stay, and it will continue to like be part of a train of thoughts, which you can also observe. So um, there's no implication that by noting we are moving away from a thought. We are simply acknowledging uh, and actually acknowledging without judgment and acknowledging actually with warmth and curiosity. So it's actually not inconsistent with seeing where certain interesting thoughts may go, you know. Um, so I'll just put that out there. That doesn't address the core of this question. I'm not pretending it does. I mean, because there's, but, um, but in case, it's like, it's really easy to think like when I'm noting a thought, it's like noting so that I don't like have that thought anymore, I go back to the breath. That's actually all that is extra. It's just acknowledgement. It's just watching, just observing. Um, and so actually like quite creative things can blossom in meditation practice. And it's not about shutting them off and having to decide whether or not they are, um, ways that your meditation is distracting you or ways that your ego is trying to like hijack your attention away from meditation or not. All that can be, you can be open about and just see over time what happens. The, um, the experience itself will show you over time. Um, so, um, but in terms of creativity and um, imagination and meditation practice, um, the first thing that came to mind uh, when I got this question was actually, I had the good fortune of seeing George Saunders, who is a, um, a longtime Buddhist practitioner um, uh, and fiction writer. Um, and um, he had recently published uh, this book called Lincoln in the Bardo, which I recommend to everyone on this call who hasn't read it yet. Um, it's a book that he kind of came out as Buddhist in, you know, he, he was actually like a kind of um, closet Buddhist for a long time. You know, I think people kind of could tell, you know, by the way he describes certain things in certain books that this guy, I think this guy practices. Um, but, um, but he never really sort of was super out about it. And then um, Lincoln the Bardo is a book that he really just, it's based on the Betten Book of the Dead. 
Um, and he's sort of imagining a mid 19th century graveyard where Abraham Lincoln buried his 11 year old son. This is historically true. And um, so uh, caught up in mourning, Lincoln spent the night in the graveyard with his son. No one knows what you know, Lincoln was doing, you know, or what, what no, no one was witness to, to that night. Um, but, but Saunders imagines that night in the graveyard and imagines the graveyard as a place where all these um, people who've been buried are, are staying stuck in this kind of bardo or in-between state um, where they haven't quite come to grips with the fact that they're dead. Um, and so they remain attached to their cells and to life. Um, and so cannot move to the next phase, whatever that may be. Um, by the way, I'll just say in passing, I, I sent out a while ago, a couple weeks ago, um, Pema Chodron's essay called The In-Between State. Well, in-between is a pretty good translation of the word bardo. So, um, so you know, what Pema Chodron was talking about in that is the way that practice puts us in this bardo state where, you know, um, we are being asked to let go of ourselves, our grip on ourselves, attachment to ourselves in life, right? Um, and so in a way we die to each moment, right? We're like, can we, can we actually, you know, let go of our, our, our um, belief in this self, this construct that we have created? for ourselves. And so um, bardos happen after death, but they can also happen in life as well. There are a lot of different bardo states. And so um, I'm not giving, I'm, don't worry, I'm not giving in too, at much away because I, I care too much about this book to do that. But very early in the book, um, so in denial are these people who are buried in this graveyard that they say, they, they call their coffins sick boxes. They, they believe sincerely that they are merely sick and that they're sent to this very strange convalescent facility outdoors, stuck in boxes, um, and will somehow resume their lives when, once they become well again. It's, it's a crazy book. It's amazing. Okay, so anyway, he just published this book and won the Booker Prize. Um, and, um, and I saw him at Newtonville Books uh, speaking with Atul Gawande. Um, who had, had published that book, Being Mortal. And both of them were talking about mortality and death. And, um, and at this event, Saunders was talking about meditation practice and his own writing practice. And he said something which I thought was so wonderful. He said, meditation practice is crucial for his life as a writer. Because only by sitting with his thoughts in this way that we you all, all of us just have, and noting his thoughts over and over again, becoming so damn familiar with all the scripts running through his mind. He became so bored of his own mind, his own self, all the storylines running through his head. He heard them over and over again. Only then would space emerge for something new, genuinely original to arise. And so he linked the creativity that is at the heart of his own professional life as a writer with the kind of awareness practice that we've been doing, but in an interesting way, um, not because it cr produces creativity, but actually because it finally allows one to get over one's own story to become so familiar with it that you aren't any more entranced by that story, right? And then it produces a space. And in that space, he said, a voice, a character will emerge. And a scene will emerge and he will just follow that voice, transcribe what's saying, attend to that character that emerges in consciousness and just see what happens. And he, it was really fascinating. He described writing as being a form of deep attentiveness to the characters and voices that would emerge in these spaces that would open up in his practice. Um, so I thought that was kind of amazing way of describing what meditation practice can do. And I think 
what I want to say is that I think it can lead to artistic creativity as the person who asked this question was asking about. So I think in short, yes, I think there is actually a deep connection between meditation and creativity. I think it's one of the reasons why, especially like in the 60s or in 70s in the United States, many of the first early adopters of meditation practice were artists. You know, um, they kind of sensed that um, there was something there um, that could unlock their creativity. Um, William Burroughs would have a notepad by his meditation cushion. Um, and even though he knew he wasn't supposed to, um, when thoughts came up in his meditation, he would write, you know, pause the meditation, write them down, you know, even though his teacher Trungpa would say, don't do that. Um, and, um, and I've heard many, many writers, Ruth Ozeki has talked about um, writing as being like a dream state that's very much like um, meditation. And, um, and she also, in the early days of meditation practice, would feel these like scenes and voices come to her in practice. And she actually asked her teacher, Norman Fisher, like what to do. And he suggested writing them down, just write them down. If, if you feel like you can't get over those, you're going to keep thinking about it, just write it down. You know, um, what she has also come to though, and I'll add this, and I, this, I, I can vouch for this is if a thought that comes up in meditation practice is one that's really important, really rich, it will come back again. I don't think you need to worry that if you don't write it down um, during sitting, that you will lose it. It will come again. So you don't have to worry so much about it. But if you are obsessed with the thought during practice and you feel like, you know, then just write it down, write it down. Um, Actually, this is a point where I'll also offer a different practice that I've talked about mm, a couple times in this group, but it's been months since I brought it up. So if you haven't heard of a book called Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg, I recommend it. Um, she is not the originator, but a pioneer in the practice of free writing. And what I love about Writing Down the Bones is that she really offers compelling connections between free writing, you know, the kind where you just write and you don't let your pen or pencil stop, or, you know, you're typing, you don't let, you don't let your, you know, fingers stop moving, just write. Um, and, um, and Zazen. She was a student of uh, Dainan Katagiri Roshi, who was the founder of um, the Minnesota Zen Center in, I think, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And, um, you know, he said to her, it's like, you know, why don't you just write? Writing is your practice. And that got her thinking about the connections between writing and practice. And what I will say is that if you just write and don't let your hand stop moving for 10, 15, 20 minutes, you can give yourself a prompt, like begin every line with, I remember, and just see how that, that line ends. It would be fat, it's gonna be, it can take you very deep places. I remember, and just like, I remember, next time you don't know what, you, you finish a thought, you don't know what to say next day, I remember. And just never let your hand stop moving. Keep moving. Even when like you say, I have nothing to say, say I have nothing to say, I have nothing to say, and then something will come to mind. Or say, this is boring, this is stupid, just write that, and then something will come to mind. Keep moving. Um, you can have a prompt like I remember, or just free write, or do, or write, describe what's around you to sensory, your sensory perceptions. I actually have found this to be a very powerful and effective practice for co the college students I teach meditation to. But I actually think it's really powerful for anybody. And one of the reasons it's so powerful is because um, in sitting practice, when we note a thought, and it's very easy to get hung up by it, to kind of start circling. But when you just do present moment awareness, like writing down what's on your mind. Don't think of what's coming next and don't think of what you wrote. It's a form of present moment awareness where the pen or pencil or your fingers on a keyboard are literally transcribing what is in your consciousness at this very moment. It is easier to not get hung up by any particular thought. And somehow it allows people, especially if you're in like ruminative circles, obsessive circles, circling around the same thought over and over again, to just move through. I would say blow through, but it's a bit too violent an image. It's really just 
move through um, and let consciousness keep moving. Um, it's actually exactly in a way what you're supposed to do when you're on the cushion. But for some people, it can be easier to do when you're writing than when you're sitting. For those of you who genuinely have come to understand that thoughts are not a problem when you're thinking, when you're sitting. Sitting is not about stopping your thoughts, but literally just awareness of whatever is going through consciousness. We'll see how this can be just like sitting. But for those who are hung up on the fact that sitting is supposed to be absolutely quiet, you're not supposed to have any thoughts, you're supposed to be single-mindedly focused on the breath, then it will seem strange. Um, and for those people, this can actually wake you up to a different aspect of sitting, which is very, very important to get in touch with. That we're, you know, to quote a text by Bodhidharma, like, we're not not thinking, we're thinking non-thinking, right? The what, what meditation is, is a different relationship to thinking than the cessation of thought. Um, <clears throat> so I'll put that out. These are some, so writing down the bones, I mean, if you just read the first 15 pages, you'll get like all, all the practical advice you'd need. And um, it's just literally lose control, just write, don't stop writing. Um, I mean, it's pretty simple but it's very, very powerful, surprisingly powerful. Um, people will often be surprised at what comes up and not just thoughts, but the emotions that can come up. Um, okay, so the last thing I'm gonna say, because and this is just touching on all the stuff that this question opened up, is that this creativity that sitting opens up is actually um, not just artistic creativity. It's just creativity. It's like, you know, you can, through this space that can be produced by just being aware of your thoughts and not being, you know, sort of getting over them in a certain extent, you know, just not being so hung up by those storylines. Um, it can open up a new way of, of relating to someone you know, some conflict that's, that's felt intractable to you. Suddenly, you can have a fresh sense of, oh, this is how I can approach that relationship. Um, or it could be in a realm that's not artistic, but intellectual in a different way. It can also, you know, things like, oh, now I know what I want to do, you know, for work, rather than this thing, which I have done and just find completely you know, meaningless or the different things can come up. Um, one of the ways of thinking about, you know, we are who we tell we, ourselves we are in language and thinking about the self as like stories that we've told ourselves that we've come to believe in. They produce ruts. You know, we've been circling those same tracks so long and the wheels of consciousness have traveled those routes so frequently, so regularly, over and over again. And meditation can, I don't know what the right image is, but you know, um, soften those grooves. Um, create the possibility of new movements, new kinds of movements. A lot of people have told me, I can't meditate. I can't control my mind. You know, I can't stop thinking. But often, I think the problem is not that they can't control their thinking, but they have too much control of their thinking. They think along the same predictable routes over and over again. Meditation is actually about losing control. And that's actually one of the key pieces of advice that Natalie Goldberg gives in the free writing, lose control. Um, okay, so that's actually a, a, um, a lot. I, I'm gonna um, end 
because actually like I'm not an artist so why the hell would you ever listen to I you know listen to what I'm saying so like you know what do I know about creativity I actually don't know that much so um so I'm going to quote a few lines from a book by David Loy called The World is Made of Stories Loy is a Zen teacher and um this is a wonderful book about um how if you put if you think about the power stories have over us, you can really understand Buddhism in a new way. And near the very end, he talks about the imagination. The very the last chapter of this book is about creativity and imagination. And he quotes these artists um, who I think because of what they produced have a little bit more authority than I have. Um, so M.C. Escher, um, the, the visual artist, while drawing, I feel as if I were a spiritualistic medium, controlled by the creatures I'm conjuring up. And it is as if they themselves decide on the shape in which they like to appear. Stravinsky, I heard and wrote what I heard. I am the vessel through which the rite of spring passed. Puccini, Madame Butterfly was dictated to me by God. I was merely instrumental in putting it on paper and communicating it to the public. Borges, I don't write what I want. I don't choose my subjects or plots. They are given to me. I have to stand back and receive them in a passive moment. And then finally, William Blake. I've written this poem, he was talking about the poem Milton, from immediate dictation, 12 or sometimes even 20 or 30 lines at a time, without premeditation and even against my will. I think we think of artists as being like, you know, narcissistic egomaniacs often, and maybe in some aspects they are, who knows. But I think actually like um, a lot of creativity can be said to come from a space beyond the self. And that's actually where the word inspiration comes from, right? Breath moving into us from outside. And actually, I think one of the reasons why the poets gave a philosopher like Plato the heebie-jeebies, you know, and said, I don't know if the, the philosopher's republic can have room for the poets, is because um, he could sense that they got their inspiration from somewhere else other than reason, other than the rational self. Okay, so that was a lot. Um, um, any, any questions or just thoughts at this point that was a lot more talk than usual but um yeah anyway sorry i hope the person who asked the question found it somewhat satisfying but um Okay, could we sit for just one to two minutes before calling it a night? Okay, cool, awesome. And this will be unguided. Just um, you know, listen to sounds if you like or whatever feels good to you.
I assign a few pages of um, Natalie Goldberg's Writing Down the Bones when I teach my class. I'll post those on the blog. So um, if you if you are curious and want to read um, the instructions I was talking about, I'll post them on the Williamstown Zen Group blog right after logging off. Um, they're kind of wonderful. Um, and even if you're not a writer, they're, um, they're, they're even if you're just um, a Zen person, I think you'll find that really wonderful. Okay, everyone, really wonderful to see you. And sorry, I was a little bit more of the college professor tonight than I am sometimes. <laughs> um, but I, that's, my, that's my day job is going to seep in sometimes. So, um, okay, uh, take care, everyone. It's lovely to see your smiling, beautiful faces. Take care. Thank you, Bernie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Bernie. Thanks.